Welcome to Topco Business Unusual podcast. Today I'm joined um, by trend analyst and founder of Flux Trends, Dion Chang. Um, it's exciting times we're in, and um, it's obviously, I'd imagine, a lot of people are, are coming to you and saying, what does the future look like? But, I mean, before we dive into the heavy stuff, how are you? Um, hi, Ralph. Uh, good, thanks. Um, just, I think, uh, like everybody, or well, half the population around the planet, is uh, just a bit of cabin fever um, and just kind of itching to to try and venture out, but then also very wary of venturing out. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. So um, Venture we'll out, see. but don't venture out. I get it. It seems yeah. to be the theme right now, right? And um, are, you, are you able to run or cycle or... Yes, yes. I'm a. Um, I'm not a runner. I'm a jogger, sort of a half jogger. So uh, the first time I was, I was let out off the the complex grounds, I was, I was very, very pleased with uh, with that. Um, so we'll see how our next kind of easing of lockdown goes. I'm calling it the great staggering around the world uh, because it's going to be a, a long stagger. It's not going to be a quick snapback, and I think we're going to have to get used to a lot of different things this year. I think the craziest thing for me is is when you – so I made a, a, a trip to the waterfront the other day, and it was surreal. It was crazy. I was thinking, have we all gone bonkers? Um, just driving past and there's nothing happening, and you just – it almost feels like a twilight zone, like a movie, and uh, we're all in it, though. And, and so it's crazy stuff. But, um, you know, it's good to have you with us. Great. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, I, I've, I've, I know that you've spoken at a couple of events in the past and I've seen you once or twice at the airport and you're always very busy and there's a lot of people coming up to you and talking to you. But I think one of the things that that um, it aligns us is that actually my wife is, is half Chinese. So she, her dad was Chinese and she was brought up here. Okay. And you've got Cantonese parents. Yes, yes. So I'm I'm third generation South African. Um, so I'm one of these weird hybrids because um, I actually don't speak. I speak very, or let's say I understand very rudimentary Cantonese, uh, but the South African dialect of the Cantonese is not what you would get in Hong Kong uh, or in Guangzhou. And if I do go to China, I don't speak Mandarin at all. So it's I'm completely flummoxed by that. Um, but I spent um, almost two years or so in France, so um, I speak French. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm one of those real weird, um, yeah, global hybrids. Uh, so I just call myself. Come up to you, did people come up to you and speak Chinese to you? And you're like, what? <laughs> uh, all the time. They they try and do a. You know, I'm 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 I'm, I'm very um, appreciative that they are trying, but they're trying to. <laughs> Um, you know, ni hao, and I'm saying, well, um, that's great, but I actually don't speak Mandarin um, at all. So if you could, uh, you know, parler français, then that's uh, better for me, but um, uh, Mandarin's not going to work for me. So, yeah, it, 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 it shakes quite a lot of people. So so funny. I know that my, my wife's father was wanting her to go to China and actually study law there in Chinese, but I think... She, she said to me that she doesn't really speak any Mandarin either. She, she learned a little bit, but she said it's a very difficult language to learn. It's, it's, it's quite complicated. 
It's incredibly, incredibly difficult. So because I grew up um, with uh, grandmothers uh, speaking Cantonese, that's why where I get my kind of comprehension of it. So I, I would say I, I don't speak it. I have a good comprehension when I'm in the zone or if you're in Asia. Um, but I try to try and do a few things on some trips to China and, and try and convert to, to Mandarin. It is extremely, extremely difficult. Um, so uh, I'll stick to Latin-based languages, so whether it's French or Spanish or, or a bit of Italian, um, I'm, I'm, I'm better on that, but, but not on, on Mandarin. And do you, do you enjoy going back to China when you go back? I mean, do you... Yeah, I don't, I don't, I haven't been uh, on so many trips to, to actual mainland China. I've just done about two or, two or three trips there. Um, the surrounding areas, obviously, you know, people have done a Thailand trip, uh, those kind of things. Um, but I'm always really fascinated. And the first trip I did to Shanghai, I actually said to my partner, I said, if uh, one of us uh, gets an opportunity to get a, I don't want to live there forever, but a year or two year contract in Shanghai, um, we're packing up immediately and, and we're going. It was just for me, um, I always talk about a new world order. And uh, the first time I went, I think it was sort of uh, mid 2000s or so. Um, and just even then, uh, you know, over 10 years ago, uh, you just saw um, a vision of a new world order just emerging very, very, very uh, definitely. So, so yes, I, I, I track a lot of what's, what's happening there as well as uh, the rest of the, the world. Um, but uh, the, the, just kind of the way in which they do things, the, the, the political structure, social structure, not, you know, not even just the, the techn technological stuff that they do there, um, just fascinates me completely. I think it's it's really um, funny for me, but there's a lot of analogies in terms of the culture, the Chinese culture, and their high productivity and their work rate and getting things done. And so it's weird because my, my wife has never lived in China, but I can definitely see these cultural things still embedded in her belief systems where you, you almost get the feeling she does three people's work in one day <laughs> well i i have a saying i have a saying for flux um that i only hire people with asian blood um so you can look you can look whatever you like on the outside i don't care uh what kind of color or features you have but you've got to have asian blood and um um, I, I jokingly say that uh, my, my partner at, at Flux, Bronwyn Williams, um, has Manchurian blood in her. So, um, yeah, deadly efficient and very, very productive. So, um, and that's the way we like it at Flux. Good multitaskers. It's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's so funny. And, I mean, when you go there to China and you see what is possible and then you come back to South Africa, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's um, a very interesting question because um, I see, you know, people have always asked me, um, with what you do, you could basically be working everywhere in the world. So what are you still doing here A in South Africa and on the African continent? So I see um, the African continent as the, the really the next, if I, if I see China as the new world order kind of now, um, if you look at the demographics of Africa and the mean, uh, the median age of, of Africa, um, it's actually a Gen Z continent. So it's it's the you know it's it's, it's teenagers rising, and the, and the entire continent is a very very young continent. So if you start extrapolating, so what's going to happen in the next uh, two to three decades? To, so by mid-century, 
um, there is just going to be incredible stuff that's going to be happening on the African continent. So I'm, I'm very passionate about because uh, South Africa is my home and uh, I'm, I'm not going to move anywhere. So, so that's there. So I love tracking that. But I do look and see what the possibilities are and the, the efficiencies of it. I mean, I spoke to um, so, the, so here's here's a, just a strange little story. Um, I spoke to a guy from Zimbabwe who had went, who had gone to Shanghai to study, and it was just before the 2008 Beijing um, Olympics, and China was just gearing up to to do that. And two little things he said to me, which have stuck in my head. Firstly, he said, um, as a African person in China, he felt less of a foreigner in China than he did in South Africa. And that was really interesting because we were going through a whole lot of xenophobia and stuff in South Africa. So that was quite a, a sort of a, a, a rubber necking moment. You're going, wow, that's that's incredible. And then he said, um, you know, he was uh, living there and they wanted to create a new subway line specifically for the, the Beijing Olympics. And he said, from breaking ground to full running um, order um, to to basically drill underground an entire new subway line took them eight months start to finish and it was completely operational and i just those are the kind of things i just remember from that so um so yes you you do kind of have a bit of wistful thinking thinking gosh if we can just kind of combine some of the innovations that we and and the kind of the the, the view and leapfrogging that we do on the african continent with the the kind of the speed and efficiency that uh that they do so in asia then then that would be a really powerful mix I get the feeling that the the government really lets entrepreneurs unleash their full might on the economy. I think that's one of the things. But also, we sort of the I think everybody was exposed to it with the hospitals, um, in Wahoon. So that was probably something like ten days to build a hospital. Like no, yes. <laughs> and then we up, and there was more of them. I think they did three, didn't they? Three or five. I mean, it was crazy. Um. Well, I remember the first, uh, the very, very first uh, trip. Uh, we had a family trip, and uh, we went went to Hong Kong. So, as a as a South African, this was, this was my first first kind of foray into Asia proper. So, um, landed in Hong Kong, and, I, and and this I distinctly remember is walking um, up Nathan Road, one of the you know the big thoroughfares there. Um, and I remember, I don't know why, but I remember seeing that night a, a, a retail store being kitted out. And I think the reason why I remember it, um, because it was 10 o'clock at night and they were still working. So that was an anomaly for me coming from South Africa. I was like, uh, you know, this is, this is really strange. Why are they still working? And the next day um, I walked past. And the reason why I remember this is because I didn't see the store that was being under construction. And then I realized, I walked up and down that block a few times, and on my third round, I realized that the shop that was up and running and trading that morning was the same one that was being finished at 10 o'clock that night. And that, yeah, that just flipped my head for, for, for a bit there. Yeah, I think it's, it's how do we get that thinking on this content, because it's almost uh, tomorrow is another day. Well, that's, that's an interesting one. So, so I had um, uh, a young guy that was writing for me. Um, he's now created this fantastic app um, and gone his own way. But he had this uh, amazing future as a as a uh, investment banker. And true to kind of millennial form, he just ditched out of that. And he just said, um, "This is not really the life for me. I, I want a, a better lifestyle. I don't just want a job." And he went. He did his homework. He went uh, to India. Spoke to app developers. He went to Silicon Valley. 
and he came back and we had a long chat and he said uh, he said the the one thing that he really really um learned from his trips was that in south africa we don't have a shortage of ideas and and that's what i feel about the rest of the continent as well there's there's a lot of leapfrogging going through we don't have the infrastructure we don't always have the funding so we just make a plan and we and we leapfrog things um and he said but the the difference is that in silicon valley he said you go there and you start announcing that you've got an idea or a concept and everybody comes sniffing around so everybody whether they kind of investors or angel investors and uh, VCs all come and say, "What have you got?" and let's have a look at it, and we'll listen to you, um, because it could be the very next, the the, the best thing. Um, and he says, "You come back to South Africa, and there is a wait and see attitude. So even in corporate business, uh, people don't want to take that risk. They don't want to create an enabling environment. They would rather let somebody else test it, and when it's successful, they prepare to fight for it once it's up and running. But nobody has the appetite." to to just kind of go in there for that risk so that was an interesting um way of looking at things as well uh, in terms of ideas uh, and that was sort of a silicon valley example versus south africa and you know compared to a, a kind of a work ethic in asia versus here so you, you must see it with what your your work because i mean there's two parts there I mean, you must see it with your work and and you're obviously looking at trends internationally and then, I mean, I get the impression that when I go overseas, I come back and I'm like, okay, they're doing this in two years, it's going to be big here. And so I start uh, moving myself towards what it's going to be in, in two years. Do you see that when you're giving trends and insights to the corporates that they, I mean, is there a way of doing it, of, of convincing them to try these things? Or how, how have you felt? It's, it's really difficult um, um, because I think it's not the it's not the shortage or lack of ideas. So um, just on that, uh, a lot of the work that I do with companies or or, or with with exec executives and management is really um, you know so so people who who don't know this might think this uh, is is quite strange because although people understand that that's what Flux says we do trends. Um, the mantra is trends as business strategy. So we we look at how these trends, disruptive technologies or new systems are going to impact a sector or a business. And then we hopefully in, uh, are able to 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 guide that 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 corporate through there. But um, what I found with that, it, it's not so much the, the, the grappling with that that idea, um, specifically senior management or executives understand that they also have a global view. They they, they know what what is coming, what the disruptions are. Um, but what is kind of lacking is that they're trying to fit that into an old 20th century system. So, so it's, it's, it's more about why the innovation doesn't scale and less about the actual innovation um, itself. So, so it's around there. The conversations are around there. But you just see over and over and over that, that these big uh, and the larger the corporate it is, um, the more siloed, the more hierarchy, the more um, hierarchical it is. And the more the system can't really change, so that the operating system doesn't change. So, so that's a lot of the, the stuff that we, we interrogate is, is, okay, here's the trend, here's the, the disruption. Um, and then, A, have you got the skill set to, to meet this? And, and a lot of the time, that's, that's not, uh, it's not there. Um, and then once you, you, you have that discussion, is it that if you have acknowledged that there's a different skill set, then should your operating system not change? Um, and, and, and that's obviously a very, very bit difficult task. But um, 
I see over and over and over again, um, it's, it's that siloed mindset. Um, it's a very hierarchical mindset that just keeps stunting um, an innovation process. And if you look at, and that's why um, I just said just uh, before we recorded that, you know, we've just released this thing about Gen Z. Um, if you just look at kind of where the future of business is going and how it's going and this future workforce, and when you see it converge, um, it's just not uh, anywhere where most of the big corporates um, are, are, are going. Because just, you know, from reward systems to, um, you know, uh, what they kind of do in terms of salary structures or HR and all of those kind of things, it's just from a different era, literally, because all of these kind of corporate structures were, were spawned in a 20th century uh, world. And, and our education system, don't even get me started on that for, for, for our kids, uh, you know, was born in the mid-19th century. Um, so so we're just kind of stumbling along into this new world order um, using very, very old tools. So so the analogy I always use is if we are literally, and there are systems around the world that start in 2019, literally getting into a driverless car shuttle, um, why do we still use an old stick shift manual to try and fix and maintain and and, and operate this, this this new car? It just doesn't work. And, and that's exactly what it is. We're trying to use very very old systems and very old tools um to to kind of kickstart a, a a trajectory um that is completely automated and it's 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 a, yeah it's you know with uh with with new technologies and stuff like that it doesn't fit um and yet we we, we keep trying to do that and i mean we have you read the book exponential organizations by Sir Ishmael? no it? i haven't no i haven't i'll put that onto my list so um he was the the executive dean of singularity university and they had a similar sort of challenge that they saw so that was about 10 years ago google and nasa set up this university singularity i'm sure you've heard of it yes and so he was the executive dean there and um they were all about um he saw a lot of c-suites in the fortune 1000 were were planning on a linear basis not um an exponential basis and so the sort of one story is about just cell phone adoption they kept on asking experts what do you think the adoption of cell phones is going to be what's the growth rate of cell phone adoption next year and they said like 10 15 percent and it doubled mm. and then they asked the same thing and like maybe 15 or 12 percent and then it doubled and then for five years they asked the experts in the industry where they saw the growth of cell phones and every year it was doubling and every year they had this linear thinking. And so they knew that there was organizations going out of business because they weren't predicting the future in a way that was meaningful. And, and they didn't understand these exponential technologies. And so he sort of, he went from there, but what, what he realized is then is that these organizations knew about exponential technologies, but they didn't know how to implement an exponential organization. And so he wrote the book, Exponential Organizations. And then he had like a, a consultancy that sort of helped organizations to transform to an exponential sort of a, a, a culture of innovation. And yes. he saw some of the biggest challenges was being around um, the immune system within the organization, similar to what you're saying, which was the hierarchy, the, the, the culture was, a, was around predictability, security, and... Um, making sure that we know what's happening and there's a, a way of doing things. But with this disruptive world, it sort of seems to challenge all, that complete status quo. And so he actually came out to one of our events last year, uh, Africa Tech Week, 
And um, I think it was we tried to engage him with both government and business. And I think the business was sort of very keen to talk to him. But I think the challenge more was the policymakers. Um, and, and I wonder, have you had much engagement with government at the moment? Because it seems that to create this enabling environment, and that's part of what government's job is, is that instead of being reactive on a daily basis, changing things in terms of lockdown, that possibly they need to take a bit of a Elon Musk 10-year view of where things are going to be and, and rather be planning on that basis? Yeah, I've, I've been asked that question many times. <laughs> I have to be very diplomatic about that um, because I just, as my general argument, a statement is I'm, I'm not holding my breath um, because I, I have sat on some kind of steering committees, uh, not, not, not on government level, but on kind of city, municipal levels and everything. And, and I, I don't have the patience and the, and the appetite uh, to, to, to wait that long for something to happen. Um, I, I find the, the, the process just excruciatingly slow um, and, 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 and literally a waste of, a waste of, of time. You know, sat, sat for a year on, on, on a steering committee and, and it, just, it just didn't go, we didn't achieve anything after that, that kind of year. Um, and so, uh, so, so this, I think the, the interactions I've had um, are not directly with government, but there's some little things in it. So, for example, uh, you know, I did a sort of a closed door session with just the, the executives and the exco for the Sur Ramaphosa uh, Foundation, um, and, and that's something I'm, I'm very passionate about. So, so I, I really enjoyed doing that because if you're talking about skills, you're talking about schools, you're talking about um, education, um, and 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 hopefully that will kind of infiltrate the system um, through through those means. So, so you know, I want to clarify: I'm, I'm not averse to, to to digging into doing that. It's just that the 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 results are are, are just excruciatingly slow, and so I'd rather try and create some change, whether it's through corporate companies or through these foundations that, that at least sort of um, you can, you can, there's, there's a bit more maneuverability and, and you've got kind of a, a, a much more receptive way of doing things a lot quicker. I think that um, listening to you now, it's, it's almost from reflecting on a different conversation I had with a guy by the name of Tony Saldana. He was, um, he ran Procter & Gamble's Global Services for 27 years and he actually worked with Salim and implemented 27 innovations within Procter & Gamble globally. And one of the things that he talks about is that the most he, he was he wrote a book about why business why transformation digital transformation fails, but what he actually talks in the book about is how to make it work, and so seventy percent fails, but that those that work is because of speed. Speed is the number one reason why 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 digital transformation succeeds, and so how do we speed up the decision making? And he talks about like a runway. Like a, an airplane has got a short runway, it needs to get up speed really quickly to take off. And so, how do we create speed within an organisation with these good ideas? And that's why I think the leadership is important to getting digital transformation going in organisations. Because if there's a bottleneck or something slowing it down, or a policy or procedure, they can release it to to really make that stuff happen. Are you are you seeing that speeds like the yeah, well, I think I think what's happened, um, you know, this year. So, so what we said in at the beginning of of twenty twenty in January, um, you know, we opened with a trend briefing. We said, well, look, this is um, 
it, it's it's always been purported to be a watershed year. So uh, a lot of companies, policies, technologies, uh, 2020 was the promised year. We will implement this by 2020. We will be fully digitally transformed by 2020. So now that 2020 had arrived, we kept saying, okay, so the deadline is now. And so where are you with all of your... Uh, your plans and your promises for for 2020, um, and and because 2020 was also not only a new year but also a new decade, um, there was kind of this hope and this this uh, you know sensing of winds of change, um, and then we were hit by a hurricane <laughs> with with COVID 19. Um, so I think, and I'm hoping, what has really if 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 we learn anything out of this this pandemic is that that speed has to be fast-tracked. And what you've started to see is all of these technologies that have been kind of waiting in the sidelines, uh, whether it's driver's cars, drone technology, um, you know, AI robotics, um, it's all kind of feeding into now a contactless economy, which is going to just completely grow um, this year, because that's going to be that long staggering uh, before we get a vaccine, before we get this completely under control. Um, so we're going to have to adapt to to this contactless way of doing things um, and you're really seeing a lot of the, the innovations come out. So so on a very, very basic level, just the one thing, I mean, it, it just sounds so, with, within two, two months of hindsight, it just sounds so ridiculous that this was the fight uh, with, with a lot of um, uh, big companies, um, was just giving your workforce a bit of flexibility. Mm. And I remember doing a keynote for um, Mercer, and it was, they were releasing a global um, uh, workforce kind of survey, uh, but it was sort of an African focus. But from whether you're in Mexico or in Singapore and even South Africa or America, every single, almost every single respondent around the world said all they wanted was a bit of flexibility. You know, so this whole 40-hour work week, nine to five, also just doesn't sit well with me um, in a digital era. It's just it's just not suited for that. So in an indus for industrial revolution, yes, that's fine. But um, when you can all work remotely, then why are you sitting for three hours, two or three hours in traffic um, and not being productive? So now, um, if you look at the great staggering, what's happening is all companies, well, A, they were forced to get everybody to work remotely. And now when people are coming back in, you can't have an entire workforce that is going to all come and clock in at nine o'clock. Um, you're going to have to have these sort of staggered shifts coming through, coming back in. And one of the most interesting concepts that I've heard is a is a 410 concept. So you your workforce in different shifts come into the office for four days and works in the office for four days. And then they go back to remote working for 10 days. Um, and that makes a lot of sense just because of the way their virus uh, works. So um, if you have, you know, if you have caught the virus, within those four days, you are basically self-isolating for the next 10 days where your symptoms would have uh, manifested themselves. And if nothing's happened, then you go back to that. So so a lot of companies from level three, when we go, which we're starting to go into, is going to have to adjust to to all of these new new ways of doing things. Um, so even from, well, for, for a trend spotter like me, stuff that was really, really fundamental has been fast-tracked and, and people have been forced to to, to, to embrace these things because they don't really have any option to to do so. So so for me, um, that's the one, yeah, you can't say you're thankful for this this pandemic, but but what the ripple effect is going to do, um, and this can 
turn into a very, very long discussion, but just about inequality, about a whole lot of things, about re-looking at systems and everything. Um, this pandemic has really done that from, from, from everything from climate change to corporate systems to politics to global supply chains. All of those kind of things have been are being reassessed now, and I don't think that's a bad thing at all. So, I mean, you, you in, are advocating change, and, um, and and you've been doing that for a while, and you're seeing some of the advocation really coming to the fore now. But I, I'm always interested in is people like yourself. You had a very successful career as an editor in fashion, and you you reimagined yourself, your career, and. And um, you sort of put yourself out there in a brave way. And I think there's a probably 95 or maybe 99% of people in the world right now are probably in a similar role. They don't know what the future holds. They don't know what they're going to be doing in two, three years, never mind in three months. Um, how did that change happen? How do you feel about it? Um yeah, I mean, a lot of people have said, you know, gosh, you, you've kind of walked the talk. And I didn't realize it at the, at the time. Um, but I, 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 I'm kind of one of those people, if you take it onto a social circuit, um, I know when to leave a party. <laughs> don't, don't be that last person that's, that's, that's hanging around there with a host trying to go to bed. Um, so I, I think I'd also realized, um, you know, I I'd, I'd worked, uh, gosh, yeah, this is telling, but I mean, I'd worked... Uh, I had a, like a 20-year career in magazines. Um, I started quite young, but I mean, I'd, I'd been in that kind of media environment and the fashion environment. Uh, I worked with Lucilla Boyson to kind of kickstart um, South African Fashion Week um, when I was editing um, as a fashion editor, started editing uh, men's uh, supplements for Elle magazine before Men's Health or, or any of, or GQ, or any of those titles came into South Africa. So I, I, I kind of, got an inkling that that what I kept doing um, during that 20-year media career was was I was always starting out with something or starting up something. Um, and and I just thought, okay, this is, uh, it's, it's now time. I've, I've kind of bought the T-shirt, worn the T-shirt, and I'm now washing the car with the T-shirt. It's, it's time to leave that T-shirt um, and, and go through. Um, and a lot of people thought I was crazy. Um, and they said, but, you know, you've, you've kind of carved this – this, this media profile for yourself out in the media world, in the fashion world, in the magazine world, um, you're crazy to, to give it up. And I think that is a crucial thing to, to not be wedded to something because just because people expect that of you. Um, and I said, just because everyone thinks that I can't do that, that doesn't mean I myself can't say I need to change, I need to pivot, and, and I need to, to, to do something differently. Um, and, it, and it does, it, it is it does take a big leap of faith um, to do that. So I don't know if it was more of a leap of faith or just, just kind of blind ignorance because I started Flex, Flex Trends. I say, jokingly, I started a trends company before trends became trendy. Um, <laughs> I had no business plan. I had no funding. Um, there was actually a little downstairs, uh, tiny 25 square meter uh, little window box, a uh, little glass box, um, below where I was working at, at uh, South African Fashion Week offices and it came up for rent and I just said, okay, I'm going to start uh, this, little, um, this little train company. And, it, and then the, the, the vision there was 
already 12, 13 years ago when I started the company, um, it, I started it out as an in, uh, information distillation service. So even 12 years ago, I just thought there was just too much information. And what I wanted to do was try and make sense of a lot of confusion and just help people mine the information. And that's why I broke it down into different pillars. And that's to this day, this is the methodology that we work at Flux, and we look at everything from te technology to politics to to do that. And I didn't want to become a another consumer insights company, which is where people first positioned us or, or perceived us to be. And then after a couple of years, we changed that mantra to to trends as business strategy. Um, and then something clicked in people's heads because then uh, the uh, we, we caught the wave at the right time. Um, and a whole lot of disruptive technologies were coming in, a whole lot of uh, social media was starting to, to rise up. Uh, you had new concepts, sharing economies, your Ubers, your Airbnbs, all of these companies were starting to just to emerge and people didn't know what to make of them. Um, and, and fortunately, we had been tracking these companies for a long time and all of these kind of disruptions. And then we were really well positioned to, to be able to, to consult to companies and say, this is, this is really what's happening. And then after that, it just went you know, from just those trends, as I said before, then going into looking at company structures and cultures and, and saying, but you're not going to ever implement this type of innovation. You're not going to ever have an, an, a culture of innovation if you don't change skill sets, if you don't change hierarchies and, and, and all of those kind of operating systems. Um, and that's where we're fortunate to, to have landed up there. So 99.9% .9 of, of all of the, the, the people that we work with and all of our clients are really large corporate uh, companies. So, so for me, it's also been a fascinating um, um, uh, journey to also understand, not only to understand the trends and, and how they fit into to a new world order, but then also to understand each individual corporate struggles and company struggles um, to do that. So I really enjoy the work because I learn a lot more about different companies and how they operate and what they, uh, the difficulties and, and challenges they, they have. And then you start matching what we do and what we research with a solution that they can um, they, they can use and they can move forward with that. So 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 it's a it's a very very uh, rewarding. Um, process that 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 we do in terms of trends and 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 business. Yeah, I mean, I was speaking to my wife earlier. She said she worked with you a lot on initially uh, some of our events, and uh, she said at one stage she couldn't even get hold of you. You were so busy and and booked out. So, and I was going to ask um, before you actually mentioned it, but timing. Yes. Booking <laughs> and timing. How important is that? How important are they? Because. You sort of got in and then things got disrupted. But you've obviously, you know, you've got a a sixth sense, like you said, of, of when to leave the party and when the new party's starting. Where did that come from? Where did that that sort of it's time to move on, it's trying to go to Paris, it's trying to go to London, you know, when did that happen that 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 self-confidence or faith in your gut? Um I don't, that's a really interesting question because I think it's just, um, I don't know, I, I, you can call it gut feel or just blind ignorance of just kind of feeling something. Um, but, but that really hit home um, during this crisis. So, so how's the, if you talk about timing, how's this for timing? Um, I'd been since 2019 wanting to move my entire office into a co-working space. Um, and 
uh, it was just a really, really busy December. There was just too much going on, and I was going to, uh, you know, not give in my my uh, uh, sign off the lease and and sign up with this. And um, just at the end of February, something clicked in my head, and I said, I've just got to do this right now. Um, and I gave notice uh, of for, for my office lease, and lockdown happened at the end of March, and I literally sold. And moved out of my office the the Wednesday and Thursday was lockdown. I basically cleared out of my office on the Wednesday, and we the the company went fully fully virtual and remote um, on the day of lockdown. And everyone said, "But how did you know to 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 cancel your lease exactly on that month?" I said, "Well, I don't know. It was just kind of this 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 kind of gut feel." Um, so I mean, that's that's just a it's I don't know it's, it's in the ether something there. But we do have a saying at Flux. And and this is has been a guiding light in terms of working with companies a lot. Um, and what I've understood over the, 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 the past 12 years of doing this is um, even if you know stuff and if you've seen stuff that's that's popping up, up around the world, uh, whether it's in a developed market or an emerging market, um, and you're speaking to a client here, and especially a more conservative company, um, is the, the, the rule is... Um, even though you are able to tell them what is two hours ahead of the curve, keep 20 minutes ahead of the curve because you'll scare the horses. And when we started out, we scared a lot of the horses. People said, you guys are crazy. You just, I don't know what you're smoking. This is not going to happen. And then kind of a year or so later, we'd say, well, you know, we told you so. Um, but now we've understood that uh, to to kind of just make it more digestible for for especially mm -hmm. for executives and, and for leadership is bring it down to 20 minutes ahead of the curve and then slowly kind of introduce that you can go um, an hour ahead of the curve and two hours ahead of the curve, but we'll start with 20 minutes, minutes ahead of the curve because that's where we are. If you just try and pull everybody um, ahead mm -hmm. and, and, and jump, five steps ahead that's really not going to work so 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 timing is is really crucial and timing is really crucial when again understanding completely what that company's struggles or challenges are at that time and where they need to move and sometimes it's not a huge shift but it's a, a small incremental shift but for me even an incremental shift is a good thing because that's what we what we kind of need to 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 do mm. to, to kind of push for change i call it small wins yeah <clears throat> So I'm, <clears throat> I'm all about small wins, anything, new ideas, new concepts, everything's about like just small movements. And I mean, you were mentioning like you did that big presentation yesterday about Gen Zs. Yes. So I mean, this is interesting because in many ways I've got children who are there or thereabouts. And it's, I, th I think I get a view probably closer than most people. And maybe that's a great thing about having children is that you start to see things generationally. Like I feel maybe the last 10 years, maybe the last five years have sort of been in, in, in touch with what's happening. But maybe before that, for the 10 years before that, I was maybe a little bit distant. My kids were too young and they weren't being, they weren't being influenced and they weren't influential. But certainly now I, I can see that young people have got such an opportunity because they don't have to change. They... They, they have this knowledge, they have these ideas of what the future looks like. It's almost like, how do we embrace them? And and I'm seeing it like um, in Namibia, you're seeing, I think it was she was 21 or 24, the new deputy minister. 
in Namibia. So mm. we're seeing young people. You you think of Elon Musk. He sold PayPal when he was like 21. Uh, Zuckerberg starting up Facebook. Steve Jobs. Um, you know, uh, so many great entrepreneurs when they're so young doing such amazing things. And it's almost like I feel one of the biggest opportunities is how do we unleash our Gen Zs and our, and our youth in business? Well, that's a, I mean, that is the crucial question. And that's why um, on our session last night, we, we actually brought, um, we, we had uh, in, in terms of a quick discussion just with two, two Gen Zs with um, quite sort of opposite demographics from in South Africa. But, but it was very interesting because the, the, I think what people completely forget about a Gen Z generation is, is that they are the first digital natives of, in history. So, so the, 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 the way they learn, the way they source information, the way they, they uh, I say it's by osmosis, it just kind of, uh, it just gets the, the connectivity with the generation is, 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 is something we, we can't understand as, as non-digital natives. We've all adopted to different technologies. So even millennials who are tech proficient had to adapt to things like social media. All of those were spawned around sort of 2003, 2005. So, so even their adoption of te technology, while faster than an older generation, um, is completely polar opposite and different to, to a Gen Z um, uh, mindset. What that does is, and I, th I call them the, the old souls of the digital world, is, and, and that came out very strong and clear in our session last night, was that um, the, the awareness of, of, of political issues, of, of climate change, of things that are fundamentally non-negotiable with them is going to impact a, a retailer, a, a, any consumer brand. Um, and, and like I said, you know, any kind of, any employer who is going to be starting to onboard this generation um, is in for a rude shock because the whole lures, what you kind of reward schemes, what the um, the hierarchical kind of structures are, what came out exactly what you're saying now is um, uh, our, our one Gen Z last, last night said, um, why do these companies not listen to us more and it's and they're trying to sell us a product but they just speaking over our heads under our heads you know just around our heads they're not speaking to us and they're not taking us seriously enough and they're not taking us our concerns seriously enough and i've been saying this for 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 a number of years and then the other panelists just said you know because uh, one of the questions came out obviously from a retailer to say you know what is what are the things that that will make you buy a product and obviously we had corporates and you know people saying so how can we sell you a healthcare a healthcare contract and they were just saying stop trying to sell the stuff you know to us because we this we want to see what your values are we want to know about the project we're going to question everything about that product before we even buy into that and and you know you forget that this is a a social media generation so peer-to-peer -peer review is far more important than um i'm buying more stuff and and i've got some bling and and i said to to the audience last night you know the what are you going to see with this this heightened awareness of uh, we call them social justice warriors um you know your 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 luxury brand your fashion brands now would be you know louis vuitton and gucci and prada um, but for this generation is what Adidas is doing. They're coming out with, with two products. One is called Prime Blue. One is po called Prime Green. So P Prime Blue is products and, and, and uh, apparel and, and running shoes 
made from harvested uh, plastic that has been pulled from the ocean. And Prime Green is recycled water bottles and plastics um, on, on the ground. And that, for me, is what a status symbol is to a new Gen Z rather than a luxury brand that um, just shows inequality and has a bad supply chain um, and has more carbon emissions and, and is more wasteful and all of those kind of things. So there's fundamentally different rules, um, which I'm just hoping people will, will get because um, it, it's going to come at them really fast. So your oldest Gen Zs are 22, 23, um, and they're going to be in your face very, very quickly. So, I mean, the whole ESG sustainability, I mean, do you see that as, because <clears throat> I look at that and I see how important it is and we're tracking it. But then I think to myself, but how relevant is it right now for companies because of what's happening with COVID? And then I suppose what you're saying is, well, actually, if they're focused on customers, then it should be number one in their placement of areas that they're focusing on. Is that right? Absolutely. So the, the ESG ratings, what we were um, tracking beforehand, you know, it, it started, uh, you saw people starting to, to, on the business radar and especially on the big corporate radar, suddenly your ESG rating became a lot more important than your CSI projects or, or, or policies. Um, and then just at the tail end of um, 2019, what was really significant for me was that a luxury brand like Prada received a 50 million euro um, uh, loan um, from, from French bank, and but it was a, a sustainability loan. And they said, okay, you can have this money, but uh, your interest rates will become more preferential if all of your stores become LEED compliant. If you train your staff in X, Y, and Z in terms of sustainability, we'll reduce the interest rates and that. So that was sort of happening just before the pandemic hit. Now, what we're seeing in Denmark and in France um, are the same conditions linked to bailouts. So Air France uh, received um, a, a bailout, but it was conditional. We will give you this money if within the next five years you pledge to reduce your carbon emissions to X, Y, and Z and all of those kind of things. So, so I think especially in this COVID world, that kind of sustainability is, is, is going to be enhanced. That, that, that message is going to reverberate. And if we go back to Gen Zs as well, I actually wrote a, um, a column about this, and I said, you know, the, the the pandemic is an excuse for your Greta Thunbergs, your all of the people with climate change, will give them impetus and a, a, another excuse to say to an older generation, "I told you so," and this is your fault. And we did a, a survey, just part of our our, our research, um, on South African Gen Zs, and something like sixty five percent all blame, lay the blame for the world's problems at an older generation's feet and saying, this is your fault, you got us into this, this problem. So for brands and for companies who don't listen to this kind of, um, this, this, this sentiment bubbling up from a consumer group and a future consumer group that is knocking at your door, then that's very dangerous to ignore that kind of stuff. And so when people say, we're not going to snap back into just what was, um, you know, the, the old normal. Um, um, I, I remind a lot of companies at the stage is that everyone's trying to rescue their businesses and trying to just um, get the economy kickstarted, which is, is, of course, a priority. But don't be so blinkered in just looking at how do we revive a, 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 a business model or a company without considering that everybody sitting at home now in lockdown has had their own 
existential crisis. And so everybody's starting to reevaluate what's important, the time they've spent or the time they've not had with family, um, being at, at home, trying to work a bit more flexibility with flexibility. All of these little things are, have changed societal mindset. So you can't reignite your business without factoring what has changed within society, because that is a huge, huge, huge thing. And the more entrenched or the longer the great staggering takes, takes um, the more entrenched these, these different mind shifts are going to be. Um, and, and whether it's a, you know, a, a corporate company or a, or a retailer, you're going to have to, to come out at the other end with a very, very different understanding of who your customer is or who your workforce is um, in order to, to, to then grow from there. That's pretty awesome, man. So, yeah. And, and um, how do you see this sort of diversity inclusion <clears throat> arena changing? I mean, one of the things that, that I'm aware of is a lot of China's growth was down to um, creating opportunities for uh, educated women in the economy. And that sort of led a lot to their growth rate. And I think that South Africa has so many women who are unemployed. I think it was something like of the unemployment rate before 40%, I think something like 80% was, um, 80% of the group were black women hmm. who were young, educated and couldn't find jobs. Well, you know, so, so part of, you know, what I do to just back up my research, I, I when, when you could, uh, I traveled extensively to, to different, uh, you know, conferences where they're innovation. And, and I went to a really interesting one in New York about diversity and inclusivity. And, and you know, when you look at kind of what's happening there in, in terms of a, a corporate culture, um, I was, you know, the, it was a huge conference, sort of, you know, a thousand people, whatever. And the, the, if you looked at the delegate list, um, what struck me was in South Africa, we, your diversity and inclusivity is kind of pushed into an HR role. Mm. <clears throat> Here you had, um, you know, uh, you started meeting people and, you know, I'm the chief kind of uh, diversity and inclusion officer at this thing. And um, I've got a small portfolio. I'm only dealing with um, 70,000 people or 7,000 people, you know, it was, just, it was enormous, enormous, enormous. And I think in South Africa, what we've done is um, because we've had to with BEE compliance, we've, we've ticked relatively easily the diversity boxes and, and, but we haven't done the inclusivity boxes. So, you know, the old adage is, um, you know, diversity is who's in the room and inclusivity is what each person does. And because America is so politically correct, uh, when that came up at the conference, somebody put up their hand and they said, actually, no, we should change that because, um, uh, you know, uh, it should be uh, diversity is being invited to the party and inclusivity is being invited to, to dance. And then somebody challenged that as well. So it really got done. And they said, no, um, being asked to invite or being invited to dance is still a passive role. Um, it should be diversity is being invited to the party and inclusivity is being asked to choose the music. And that kind of was, oh, okay, I get it now. So that was there. And, and in terms of South Africa, we are not letting everybody choose the music. Um, and we need to do a lot more of that and, and not window dress and say, okay, we've got a really diverse workforce. Look at us. Uh, we can all sing Kumbaya, but we know um, that even America, just the, you know, the recent events, um, you know, police brutality, all of these kind of things is it's, Still bubbling up 
and it's an undercurrent that's that's there and in south africa it's there in a really really big way and we we can't ignore that kind of stuff there i mean the only company that i've sort of know of is um anglo platts i think they brought about 200 women in this is a couple of years ago now four or five years ago they brought about 200 women into a conference room and they brought up every single job available and they asked the women there in the room there's only women invited what can you do this yes can you do this yes yes <laughs> and they set about um setting targets of how to bring women into those different roles and i think they employed so they were doing retrenchments at the time but they I think they employed five thousand women into those different roles so <clears throat> sometimes the solutions are quite easy right but it's like you're saying inviting them in and then asking them what song they want to yeah want, want to hear I mean, you mentioned travel, and I know that you like traveling, and you want to. You, you like traveling at least every quarter, and and I share that passion. So for me, I, I think I'd do it selfishly, obviously, um, for for one reason, which is I think I work hard, and then what I want to do is take a bit of a break. It's not like I don't st- stop working because I will, but I like to get away and get perspective and be inspired. And get out of the normal routine. Um, I mean, what what are you seeing? What are you going to be missing about that? How are you seeing travel in the future? Well, yeah, that that's a that's a really big one for me because, as you say, you know, I'm I, I have a I've traveled in my DNA. It's um, and and that's what I started doing. Uh, tried to start doing it in 2018, fully implemented in 2019, and then unfortunately that all uh, went pear shaped in 2020. But basically. Um, I, I travel a lot for work, but um, I decided that um, I wanted to do or travel somewhere um, for myself once every quarter. Um, so in 2019, I did two, at least two local breaks and then two international breaks um, every quarter. And I've, I've realized now that for me, it's, it's, it's less of an indulgence. But but it's because of what I do is is completely what feeds um, not only myself but but what feeds what I do at Flux Trends and and it's mm. it's become really really crucial to do that so so I'm I'm feeling a little bit handicapped uh, because of this this travel ban and it's it's going to be a very long time um, mm. until the, there's a free flow of of, of travel um, but I also say you know if there's any parents listening to this as well you know when when people say to me. Oh, you know what must I, I i get i get cornered a lot by parents uh, by by gen z parents so so ralph you haven't cornered <laughs> me um but i get you know a they were saying so what was what does my, my you know my, my son or my daughter's in 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 the trick what 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 are the jobs of the future what must i what must i do and the first thing i i say to them which throws them completely is i'm saying i say to them please don't push them into university at 18. And they just look at me completely dumbfounded mm-hmm. and I'm saying, but they said, but, but why? They've got to get, you know, a, a backup career. And I said, that backup career is so obsolete. Uh, what, they, what this gen, generation is going to do is so totally different and removed from what you understand of a career trajectory. And I said, the best thing they can do is A, do short courses, but B is travel. Travel, travel, travel. I said, rather get a, uh, you know, a, a, a bachelor of, of life and travel and understand the kind of the dynamics of the world um, and then start, if they want to, an, either an academic career or not an academic career because it's, it's just kind of what, what, what is, is more needed now. And I think 
now we need to understand the world and and the dynamics of kind of social cohesion, cultural cohesion, all of those kind of things, a lot more holistically um, than 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 just diving into an academic kind of trajectory. Um, and then when I get a bit of pushback, then I always remind parents is that um, I said, okay, if you if you if you don't like what I'm saying, then let's take a physiological argument. And I say to them, uh, you do understand that your teenage uh, child's brain is only going to slot and settle into adult thinking mode at 21 and 22. And I said, if you look at history, history is littered with parents pulling their hair out when at 21 or 22, their child, their son or daughter comes and said, you know what, mom, dad, um, that degree that I've been doing for the past four years, I don't think I want to do that anymore. I'd rather do something else. And they go, you know, they have a hissy fit and they go, and they've, you've wasted all this money. And I said, no, you pushed them too early when it wasn't appropriate to do that. And that normally ends the, the that conversation. So, so yes, so there's a lot of kind of, uh, for me, travel. I was really, really fortunate. I, my parents took us on the first um, overseas trip to Europe um, when I was 12 and the travel bug then and since 12 years old I've just been I've had an extra bag packed all the time and that's what I do I think it also just changes your your perceptions you know you see people doing things completely different and there's lots of them so you understand what's possible as well the way they eat the way they communicate the way they move so I also I also traveled from a very very young age I, I hopped from country to country my son's 20 so we, we've definitely done our little bit of pushing um and in fact it's probably earlier than that and and i think in some ways it's really i've read a lot of books about it but it's still very difficult not to try and <laughs> position things in a certain way it's really hard i actually found but i also saw some evidence that it's only actually up until like 35 that people realize more or less what they want to do and sometimes they can be medical doctors and there's so many examples of people being medical doctors or investment bankers and then completely pivoting or editors of very successful publications i don't know if you know any um so the 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 two slides that that we can't seem to get get rid of from uh, from our decks uh, whatever presentation we do um there's 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 one that just has you know four bubbles and it just says uh, school university uh, work and then retire, and then I add a fifth one saying we'll die, uh, because that's a really nice linear way of of what we were promised as as the path to true happiness. Um, and the next slide is is a much more sort of schizophrenic one, or seemingly schizophrenic one, which has you know uh, school, university, work, um, mini retirement, further education, work, um, and so it goes. So it, it it keeps going there. And and what we do, and and I speak to a lot of HR practitioners as well, is that you've got to make peace with this. Um, because A, this is the nature of businesses. Um, your skills are going to be hybrid and your skills are also going to land you up in not only a different company, but in a completely different sector. So, so you've got to keep adapting those things. And, and because change happens so, so quickly and so exponentially, um, you have to keep updating your, your, own, uh, your, your own skills and, 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 and way to move that. Um, and you know what I say to, I, I spoke at a CSI conference and I said, for me, the, the new version of CSI is, is maybe a radical one. I said in South Africa, we obviously, because we have the biggest, mm -hmm. the largest Gini coefficient, we have to look after communities outside of it and, and kind of just 
start stepping away from just bottom line thinking and shareholder primacy. But for me, the new CSI is making sure that if and when someone in your workforce is uh, replaced by an algorithm or by automation, they are upskilled enough so that they can be displaced. So we talk about the displacement economy. So if you are um, you know, replaced by a machine, then you're going to be displaced into a different ser maybe service, uh, service industry. Um, so keep training people so that your company not only has the best up-to-date skills, but also if and when that person does get pushed out by an algorithm, they have a fighting chance to do that. So it just kind of flips CSI onto a very different footing and saying this is what we need to do to to kind of go into this 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 world and and again for those uh, hr practitioners especially the ones that are listening now is just make peace uh, with the fact that for especially a younger workforce there will always be a side hustle um you are not the only be all and end all in terms of a career in terms of a job there will always be something on the side um and so i say to them you rather have to mentor um, a younger workforce in juggling a career portfolio rather than a career trajectory. And that always, I get sort of blank stares when I say that, but it's true. So, I mean, the two examples I've got is, is one is the British Army. I know when you leave the British Army, they do a lot of retraining to, to you know, bring people back into society so they could do something else. And then the other thing is that side hustle. I mean, I, I, I get that sense that that's happening, but isn't that to an organization's advantage? Because actually what they're doing is they're thinking like an entrepreneur because they're doing something entrepreneurially. And that's going to add value to the organization to unpack what these guys were thinking entrepreneurially are doing because an entrepreneur has to acquire skills and customers and understand that. Isn't that the best type of employee that you want, someone who's got that side hustle? Well, it, it absolutely is, and, and, and that exactly goes to my point, is that cust uh, a lot of companies see that as a threat, and especially in people in terms of HR see that as a huge threat, is that you're doing something else on company time or you, you know, you're not going to give us our full focus and all of that instead of saying, well, this is really valuable to us and we can, we can do that. And that, for me, moves on. It's not only just that side hustle, but also um, I talk a lot about um, – company culture, you know, do you have a speak up culture? Because if you want to innovate, um, essentially innovating is challenging the status quo of whatever it is, a system, uh, a new idea uh, that's, that, that might replace something that's in your company. Um, and if you can't challenge that, and if you can't have somebody that will, that can speak up and, and challenge that, and specifically a younger and more junior part of your workforce to actually say, I think there's a better way of doing this. Um, you know, and, and then the argument I get is, well, you know, well, they don't they don't understand the business. And I'm saying, but, you know, if you're in, in banking and financial services, you know, fundamentally, that your biggest threat is not going to come from inside the banking and financial services world. It's going to be a social media company that offers financial services and that's going to take you out. So so why not listen to those 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 voices? You might not have to 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 adopt or implement anything that they say, but at least listen to them and hear them out. And, you know, you'd be surprised at how many walls are built up. And again, we go back to the, you know, the session we had with Gen Zs. And, and this is what uh, the one the one young lady who's just started work saying, just like, I just don't feel I can say anything and I'm told to shut up. And and if I'm told to shut up, I'm not going to stay there very long. And then they, they leave. And then the HR practitioners then bemoan the fact that, oh, my goodness, we can't keep young people because the churn is so quick. And I'm saying, but 
you know, have you understood really why the, the, the churn is so quick? And, and there's always a disconnect with that. I mean, one of the one of the things that I think we try to implement that I saw overseas works quite well is where the CEO actually identifies the youngest people in the company. So those under either 23 or 21 or 25, and they engage either on a weekly or monthly basis with those group of people. Because I think two things happen. One, the people get connected to the CEO and they understand the, what the vision, what he's trying to do. But more than that, I think the CEO actually learns about what the future customer is thinking and doing and he can scale and adapt his business or her business quicker. Well, exactly. So um, because of all of these innovation, uh, I've gone to innovation tours, I've gone to Silicon Valley masterclasses to kind of scale, understand how to scale innovation specifically in a large organization. So I've kind of brought that down. But then I thought the, the innovation tour I did in New York a couple of years ago was, was amazing, but it didn't speak about what we're doing on the African continent or in South Africa. So I, I created in February a, a solution-based innovation tour uh, the, uh, and we launched that in Johannesburg. It was going to then move to Cape Town, then it was going to move Pan-African, but obviously COVID's kind of put that at a pause, so it's, it's still going to happen. But what happened with that was really interesting. So the, the delegates that came onto the tour, um, at the end, we just said, what did you, what did you think? And the, the one guy from, from an asset management company just said the biggest learning he had was we don't ask any of our young workforce anything. Um, they come in as minions, they are treated as minions, and we never, never ask them. So he says, all the executives huddle around in the boardroom, they decide kind of what to do, but we've never, ever consulted on new ideas or, or even down how to kind of improve doing the grunt work. Is there a better way of doing, you know, the, whatever they have, the menial job that they have to do as an entry-level job? He, it was a big kind of penny drop for him to say, that was my light bulb moment is we just don't speak to, to people and, and get those ideas. So we, we essentially putting blinkers on our own thinking, thinking that we're the executives, we can, we know the best for this and we completely exclude, um, you know, what this new customer is, what the new wants are, what the new technologies are, how to make it more seamless, how to make business efficiency just much more quicker and, and faster um, and, that's why I'm so passionate about a uh, younger workforce and, and new systems within within companies. It's actually, many companies are using it as an advantage because they're not held out by old ways of thinking, old systems. They can be free to come up with these innovations. And what we're seeing as well is a lot of young people being pushed into the innovation team, especially if they don't have experience in that industry. Yes. It's becoming an advantage as opposed to a disadvantage. Well, I'm about to do um, a, an executive uh, masterclass uh, uh, next week, um, and I'm preparing for this because um, exactly that. So, so you know, a lot of companies will say, well, we have an innovation hub, so we're going to innovate. And I'm saying that's actually counterproductive. And I get a lot of blank stares from that as well. They said, you know, how can we be counterproductive if we have an innovation hub? Um, and, I'm, and I say to them, the making of an innovation hub completely divorces the innovation process specifically from top management and specifically from from leadership so you you expect that innovation hub to come up with a silver bullet that's going to rescue the business but you're not emotionally invested in it and it's completely outsourced and i spoke before we kind of launched a lot of stuff on innovation i spoke to a lot of people in innovation hub uh, innovation hubs uh, around in different uh, sectors 
And the, the level of despondency was very high and very common. And again, that's, they said it was not the lack of ideas. They said, one company said, we've got a deck of about 14 projects that we're trying to push through and trying to, to activate and implement, but it's just not happening. So, so what happens is you take two steps forward, the champion within that company then either leaves or, or moves on somewhere else. Um, then there's nobody championing that project. Then it goes three steps back again. And so these projects just kind of stall and stall and stall and stall. And then people get more and more despondent and they just say, well, I'm not going to achieve anything here. So I'll rather move on and, and kind of do that. So, so that's why I've also, you know, besides the Gen Z thing, the, the whole thing of innovation is, is, is such a passion point for me is just to, to, to try and understand what releases it, what are the mechanisms that you need to do it and how to create that, that enabling environment. Because a lot of people assume they have an enabling environment for innovation. And when you actually look at the whole layout of, of the, the operation system and, and, and the pathway to that innovation, it's just not there. And people don't see that. Sure. I mean, I suppose one other thing that interests me as well with you is that you have you studied Buddhism or you practice Buddhism? Um, let's say I'm a lapsed Anglican <laughs> and a and a non-practicing Buddhist. People get very confused with that. So, so yes, I, I adhere to Buddhist principles. I'm not fully Buddhist, but uh, in fact, when I started Flux Trends, um, I said to somebody, um, "I want to start a Buddhist-based." company and they again looked at me i get a lot of black stares they looked at me very blank and they said what the hell do you mean by that and i said uh, with that one um in terms of in information overload i said we have lost the interconnectivity between um, all of these sectors whether it's you know politics pop culture everything and that's why i'm saying that's the, the methodology of flux now we join the dots between all of those and and we and we make sure that there's the interconnectivity for that so 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 those buddhist principles guide me in a personal life, but also guide me in terms of, of how to structure Flux as a business and what we do and give people a very holistic way of doing things and looking at things. When you mentioned joining the dots. I mean, what are the what are you seeing as the overwhelming trends at the moment with COVID? What are you seeing as the top sort of five or six trends? Well, I think firstly, it, it, it's really about fast tracking those those technologies. A lot of things have not uh, that that were standing in the sidelines uh, have have really been pushed forward. So, so we, we, we've mentioned that. Um, the other one is is the the, the conversation around climate change. Um, it was top of mind as we ended twenty nineteen. Um, COVID nineteen then kind of just pushed that onto the onto the sidelines. But it is there. It is. It is. It is. It is something that that the pandemic has also uh, kind of pushed forward. So, so the climate change is going to be very, very strong on people's radars when they come through. Especially when you get retail um, and those global supply chains of fast fashion cycles, all of those kind of things. Sustainability is is going to be questioned uh, a very, very big time. Um, the other one that I think is is a big one is the you know I call this. Uh, so there's two things here. There's the pandemic of hate. Uh, the the sort of the sinophobia that's that's come through and it's not helped by by Trump you know uh, trying to blame a portion a proportion blame on it uh, for in in China uh, for that so so the xenophobia which we already started seeing which is so prevalent around the world with um, Syrian refugees war refugees displacement that kind of xenophobia um, is going to come back up that's not a nice one 
The other one that I think it's going to be a huge one is the, um, the, the, the focus on inequality, because especially in emerging markets, um, when, when the, the, the virus started spreading, it was called the disease of the rich because mm. it is spread by people who have the means to travel. And if you have health care or if you've got health insurance, you have a better chance of surviving this because you are taken care of with that. So very much like after 9-11, you saw this huge, um, a lot of funding into, into kind of, uh, you know, border security, terrorism, anti-terrorism. Uh, we gave up a lot of our civil, civil liberties and uh, going through uh, checkpoints at airports, all of those kind of things. I'm hoping, this is my Pollyanna moment, I'm hoping that this will realign what is important. So our essential workers, your, your, your educators, your nurses, your doctors, um, all of those frontline, and also equitable health care is, I hope, what's going to be put onto that. And then maybe just the last one is um, if that was what we gave up in terms of civil, li civil liberties, sort of the security checks and all that going through airports, what I'm starting to see, which was a conversation that started pre-pandemic, but about your data and your privacy. So you're seeing all of these contact trace and tracking apps uh, bubble up around the world, China's obviously mastered it. The UK is really trying to push that and implement there. There, And I've been saying for many, many years that while your cell phone data is what people are mining in terms of retail, in terms of just your movements within shopping centers and everything, the next pot of gold is going to be your health data. And that has now come to fruition because everybody is going to, whether you are going to be able to be travel, your health data is going to determine your kind of freedom of movement, the level of what you can and can't do, all of those things are starting to, to do that. And then I don't think I've done four. So number five, I'm going to give you five. Um, the last one is that um, be prepared for us all to become agoraphobic. So if people aren't uh, uh, well-versed with agoraphobia, it's basically an anxiety disorder uh, where the person perceives that the environment is completely unsafe and there's no easy way to escape. So open spaces, public transport, shopping centers, all of that kind of thing. You know, if any of us have done that quick dash for some grocery shopping, <laughs> we are all going to become very agoraphobic. So that's going to have another ripple effect. It almost seems cool to talk about your anxiety and your <laughs> depression now. Um, I, I check in with my team every day and tell them when I was last anxious or fearful. So... Um, it's hard, but it seems to be the new new thing to do. And I mean, I, I'm very grateful for your time and your insights. And I think um, it's really exciting. One of the things that that I think is on a lot of people's mind is is the future of Africa. How are you seeing the future of Africa? I'm I'm very very positive about the future of Africa. I think um, if you look at the so I mentioned before that the, the fact that. The African continent is a Gen Z continent, so we're we kind of primed for, for a, a new kind of youth revolution to, to be able to do things. The, the biggest impediment for Africa is going to be connectivity, because um, even when we talk about uh, Gen Z, I always get this discussion, it's like, well, you know, especially in South Africa, we've got a divided economy, so are the, the hopes and aspirations of a Gen Z demographic very different from developed world countries who have that. And I say, actually, no. If you look at a lot of surveys, if you look at a lot of um, uh, research to, to do that, the, the, 
the the leveling of the playing fields comes with internet connectivity. Once you have that connectivity, it opens portals to the rest of the world. You are able to see what other people are doing around the world. You're able to learn things you, to do those. And the one, uh, the one CEO that I did work with, um, and they've got a really, really large uh, <clears throat> um, uh, business, uh, Pan-African, huge, huge, huge bottling company. But he said something that, that made, for the first time, my heart really, really sore and say, oh, fantastic, somebody really gets what I'm saying about, about this generation and, and the African continent. And he said, we look at every single African country um, that we service as a first world country. We don't differentiate because of that connectivity. So if, and that's a big if, if they have connectivity, a youngster sitting in Cote d'Ivoire or Ghana sees something that, oh, God forbid, the Kardashians are doing or something that somebody you know, has, mm -hmm. been, has been doing on social media. The question is, why don't I have that in my country? And then he said, then you're going to get an entrepreneur and then an innovator in that African country to say, well, I'll make a plan. I'll work around the funding. I'll work around the infrastructure and I'll create something. And we've seen that happen. And he said, as a company, as a huge multinational company, they can't afford to make those assumptions and, and make those mistakes. So there you have it from a CEO as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that connectivity thing is going to change and people need to almost think like you're saying, think forward on Elon Musk, how it's going to be in five or ten years because Google's putting up their balloons, you've got Facebook doing the underwater sea cables, you've got 5G coming. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So you're seeing you're seeing those 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 big those big companies really push push that into the into the African context. So um, it will come uh, sooner or later, but it will come. Cool. Thank you so much for your time, Diana. Really, really appreciate it. And um, we're we're big believers in future trends. So um, I'd love to keep updated with where things are going. Uh, hope your weekend's great and hope the 1st of June and the new great staggering is uh, good to you. Good. It was really great talking to you, Ralph, and um, good luck with your three Gen Zs. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I hope I've been able to reinforce some of their arguments for them uh, when, they come, when they come to you for something. So I won't be sharing it with them with ammunition. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers.